Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Books Podcast with author Paul Lynch, held in association with the Irish Writers' Centre in Parnell Square in Dublin. I'm Laura Slattery and I'm here to talk to Paul about his award-winning third novel, Grace, this month's Irish Times Book Club title. Grace follows a young girl as she crosses famine-stricken Ireland, setting off from home with her younger brother, Collie. Grace encounters dangers and desperation on her path from starvation to survival. Published by One World last year and just out in paperback, Grace has been praised by the New York Times for its lush poetic prose and by the Sunday Times for ploughing its literary terrain with customary verve and gusto. Grace was recently named the Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year, while it was also shortlisted for the Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction. Here to tell us how and why he wrote The Mesmerising Grace, please welcome Paul Lynch. So, Paul, I just want to start by asking you what the initial spark was for writing this book. The spark. Hmm. Is there ever a spark? It's usually a sort of these vague, vague intimations you get over a long period of time. Um, I think it might have been Marianne Moore, the American poet, said that all art begins with feeling, with a feeling. And I had this feeling for some time within me of this character, this 14-year-old girl. And I didn't quite know who she was or what she was supposed to be doing, but the, the feeling persisted. And that's usually the first sign that there's a story that needs to be told. And um, around the same time, I uh, had taken up an interest in uh, reading up about Mao's famine in China. Um, Mao's famine was 1958 to 61, 62. And um, the archives had been opened and a lot of historians had, had got, uh, got access to these files and had written a lot of books. They'd been coming out um, over the last five, six, seven years. And what was really interesting about Mao's famine was totalitarian communism missed nothing and recorded everything. And a lot of details started to emerge that were consistent with uh, famines, you know, universal kind of behaviours that occur during famines, things, things that we don't like to think about. And uh, I found this very interesting because here they were recorded bureaucratically. And this was in contrast to the Irish famine. And this is the thing. Um, you know, the Irish famine is a silence. Uh, we, have, we do have an awful lot recorded that's, that's, um, that is bureaucratic, um, but we don't have testimony. We have very, very little direct testimony. And I'll come back to that in a little while. But what the, the I had been read, so I'd been reading up on 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 the famine, on, and I didn't see a connection at all between the two. And I was doing an interview with with uh, Arminta Wallace in the Irish Times, and she said to me, "So you know, what what are you working on next? Would, would you write a book about uh, a follow up, perhaps, to Red Sky and Morning, which was my first novel?" And there, the, she she mentioned about the character called Sarah that she was a very interesting voice, and you know, perhaps a book about her. And I just dismissed that immediately. I was like, you know. This is Sebastian Barry territory, and he's amazing at what he does. These kind of family sagas. There's absolutely no way that I, I could imagine doing that. So then, um, about six weeks later, I sat down and started to write this this 14-year-old girl, and suddenly I discovered that she had a mother, and she had a brother, and that she was 14, and the brother was 12, and I suddenly had this feeling that it was 1845. And I went, hold on a minute. I did a little bit of math. Suddenly, 
she was the daughter of Col Coyle from Red Sky in the Morning. Which was set in the 1830s. In 1832, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was um, slightly surprised by the obviousness of this that I didn't know that. And so I walked away from it for a little while and I said, well, I don't want to write a famine novel. That's just, who wants to write a famine novel? Why would you want to do that? Um, but also I just, you know, for, for the good reason, you know, I felt like I'd plowed that territory. I had done Red Sky in the Morning and I didn't really want to go back in um but this is the thing, you know, we write the books that uh, we do because they need to be written and something within me had to, had to come out. And uh, there, there's, there's that line from Joseph Campbell, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. But would you say, I mean, is, is Grace about the famine or is, or is it about Grace? You know, is it primarily about Oh, it's survival? about Grace. It's about yeah. Grace. It's, a, it's her coming of age story. Um, but of course, it's also about the famine. I mean, what you try to do in a novel is you try and hold two things together, the, the subjective and the objective, the subjective being the character, the story, you know, the, 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 the facts of, 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 of engagement with the world and experience. But at the same time, they have to move through time. And it turns out that the time is 1845. And so the, it, it, by default, it becomes a novel about the famine. And when you say you initially had a feeling about this 14-year-old girl, was that, you know, was that an emotion that she had or, or, or you know, what, what, an instinct or something that led you to believe that this was, this was her? It's very, it's very hard to explain this stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, the, the, the fact is, is if, if, if you knew the answer, you wouldn't have to write the book. Yeah. You know, the, the writing of the book is actually articulating who this, who this person is, mm-hmm. tuning into them. Uh, and so when you, when you find the right uh, sort of melody for the book and the right, the right voice for it. Really, it's giving, finding access to the characters and finding access to Grace. So the, the fact that people didn't talk about the famine through, through shame mm. and so on, I mean, that's an incentive right there, isn't it, for you as a writer to yeah, try and explore it? for sure. And I think that's one of the things that I started to come to terms with when, when I was writing the book was and I was trying to figure out why is it that I don't want to write about the famine because it's not as if, you know, the, the technical challenge of writing about the 1840s is difficult because I had written about the 1830s. And so, you know, I had already created a world and in fiction when you're, you have to build a universe for it to be believable. You, and that universe has to have like laws of physics that we have here. Otherwise the thing collapses and it, it lacks believability. So you, a lot of the time when you start writing a book, you, you have to spend a large a lot of the work goes into building the physics of the universe through language. And but I, so I, because I'd done that, I could slide back into this, this period easily enough. Um, so you were able to marry what you knew of the period in Ireland with the research that you'd done into Mao's famine. That's what, sort of, that's what started to come together. And, and, and the, but, but as part of it, I had to figure out why was it that I was afraid to write about this? What, what was it that... That, uh, that really put me off the subject. And what I, what I found was, I mean, the more, I, I, the more research I did, the more I started to think about it, was that there, there, there is an enormous silence there. And there's a silence, uh, it, you know, there's a, there's this, obviously there's the silence of those who took the stories to the grave. Um, but there's also an enormous silence from those who um, survived it but did not speak of it again. That's that's what I find very interesting. I mean, my four grandparents were alive into their 80s and one of them into their 90s, and I never heard them speak even anecdotally about the famine. And that's that's interesting. And uh, because, you know, 
they, they were of an age where they, they, they would have had grandparents who would have had some experience of it. And um, so you would almost expect there to be a greater sort of oral tradition of, of, of famine storytelling. Yeah, I mean, and, and there, there is there is a very rich folk tradition, you know, and, and, and there are a lot of work was done on this in, in the 30s and recording, um, recording testimony or not testimony, but, you know, secondhand testimony from uh, from uh, children and grandchildren. But, but what 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 tended to be found was that um there's a sort of denial in the very act of the telling. Things that were told always happened to somebody else. It always happened. It was not never in this house and never in this townland. And so that automatically is a distancing. And um, that was consistent, it would seem, with, with how, you know, these stories were handed down. And so in that distancing, the stories don't actually direct directly address real lived experience. Um, and the people who didn't speak of it at all, didn't speak of it for a reason. And so, you know, we know from we know from other famines that seriously bad stuff happens, you know. Um, people have to do things that they, that, that they don't want to think about. And, you know, there was a massive surge in criminality during the period. And so I, th- these are the things that are, are very interesting as a writer because, you know, we always have this thing in our heads, well, I would survive the famine. You know, I would, I would survive, you know. We just assume that we, that we would get through it. But the fact is, is... Not everyone does, and what would you do to get through it? So with Grace, I had this idea of a character who was, you know, I found that she wasn't a typical victim, so to speak, that she, she wasn't somebody who would give in very easily, that she would actually go, the, she would go the full measure in terms of what it would take to survive, and she does. I mean, she, she, um, she very, I mean, she, she, she becomes a boy at this, I mean, she becomes a boy um, for a period of time, and encounters all sorts of strange mix-ups and 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 a murder and you know, um, but then slowly, surely she she slides into into criminality and uh, and then worse again after that you know and uh, and she has to do this and so the book is testing her it's putting it's putting her to the test and there's 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 a line from Dostoevsky that um, how much human being is in a human being and so the book is constantly you know, turning the screw on her and seeing how she responds. And she 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 responds in, in, in the best way that she can. And but the thing is is that the event that's unfolding is so enormous that she almost goes under. She's almost swallowed by it. And in fact, I mean it's there's only there's a, like you could call it a miracle and that she she do, that she's rescued, you know? And and that's that's what was what I wanted to kind of I wanted to feel that. I wanted to feel this, the actual enormity of the event, that even with somebody like Grace, who is a survivor that had to survive, uh, not just in the minds of the reader, but in, in her own mind, she has to survive. But the, the enormity of the event is so great, she comes so close to not surviving. So I think this is probably a good moment to invite you to read sure. from Grace. Yeah. So if you want to introduce it and then... Uh... Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to read from the opening. Great. Um, so... We're in, we're at the Samhain of 1845. This flood October, and in the early light her mother goes for her, rips her from sleep, takes her from a dream of the world. She finds herself armholed across the room, panic shot loose to the blood. She thinks, do not shout and stir the others, do not let them see ma'am like this. She cannot sound out anyhow, 
Her mouth is thick and tonguing shock, so it is her shoulder that speaks. It cracks aloud in protest, sounds as if her arm were rotten, a branch from a tree snapped clean. From a place that is speechless comes the recognition that something in the making up of her world has been unfixed. She is drawn to the exit as if harnessed to her mother, her body bent like a buckling field implement, her feet blunt blades, a knife cut of light by the door. Her eyes fight the gloom to get a fasten on her mother, see just a hand pale as bone viced upon her wrist. She swings her fee fist, misses, swings at the dark, at the air complicit, digs her heels into the floor. Will against will she pits, though Sarah's will now has become more like animal power, a secret strength she thinks, like Neely Ford's ox before he killed it and left, and now her wrist burns in her mother's grip. She rolls from her heels to her toes as she is dragged out the door. What comes to meet them is a smacking cold as if it has lurked there just for them, an animal thing eager in the dawn, a morning that sits low and crude and grey. Not yet the true cold of winter, though the trees huddle like old men stripped for punishment and the land is haggard just waiting. The trees here are mountain ash, but bear not the limbs of grace. They stand foreshortened and twisted, as if they could find no succour in the shallow earth, were stunted by the skies ever low. Beneath them pass Sarah and her daughter, this girl pale-skinned, fourteen, still boy-chested, her long hair set loose in her face so that all her mother can see of her are the girl's teeth set to grimace. Her mother forsits her on the killing stump. Sit you down on it, she says. It seems for a moment that a vast silence has opened. The wind, a restless wanderer, all times at this height is still. The rocks set into the mountain are great teeth clamped shut to listen. In the mud puddles the girl is witness to herself, sees the woman's warp standing over her grey and grotesque. The spell of silence breaks, wing flap and whoosh of a dark bird that shoots overhead for the hill. She thinks, what has become of ma'am while I slept? Who has taken her place? Of a sudden she sees what the heart fears most, pulled from out of her mother's skirt the dulled knife. And then, out of her own dark comes her brother Collie's story, his huge eyes all earnest, the story of a family so hard up they put the knife to the youngest. Or was it the eldest, she thinks. Collie, always with the stories, always yammering on, swearing on his life it was true. Quit your fooling, she said then. But now she knows that one thing leads to another and something has led to this. She hears Sarah wheezing behind her, hears the youngers creep open the door to peep. She thinks of the last living thing they saw put to blood, the unfurling of the goose into arcing white as it was chased, rupturing the air with shrill. The eerie cam of that bird with its long neck to the stump, 
and their sister quiet now just like it, the same blunt knife that made such long work, and bogs that time waiting, the way he picked them clean. She sees the blade come up, becomes an animal that bucks and braces against her mother. The rush of collie then, this small bull of a boy twelve years old, his cap falling off, yelling out his sister's name. Grace! She hears in his voice some awful desperation, as if to speak her name is to save it from the closure of meaning, that as long as he is sounding it, no harm can be done. She feels the swerve towards an oncoming dark, colleague tugging at his mother, the way he gets an arm around Sarah's waist until she makes light work of him, puts him to the ground. Then she speaks, and her voice is shaking. Collie, get you back into the house. Grace turns and sees her brother red-cheeked upon his sit-bones, sees the knife in her mother's hand as if she were embarrassed of it. Eye to eye they meet, and she is surprised by what she does not see in her mother, any sign of madness or evil. Hears when the woman speaks a knot twisting in the cords of her throat. Enough, please, would ye? Then Sarah moves quick, takes a fist of the girl's hair to lay bare the porcelain of her throat, brings up the knife. All the things you can see in a moment. She thinks there is truth after all to Collie's story. She thinks the last you will see of ma'am is her shadow. She thinks take with you a memory of all this. A sob loosens from the deepest part and sings itself out. What she meets is the autumn of her long hair. It falls in swoons, falls a glittering of evening colours, her hair spun with failing sunlight. She sobs at the pain in her scalp as her mother yanks and cuts, sobs as her hair falls in ribbons, her eyes close to their inner stars. When she opens them again, her mother has circled her, Collie on his knees holding fistfuls of hair, the wind cold licking bitter at her bare neck. She raises her hands and puts them dumb to what's left of her head, her mother stepping in front of her, the knife going into the dress. Sarah looks frustrated, breathless, wan and exhausted, the skin on her throat beginning to hang loose as if to wear it well requires effort she has not within her, her collarbone a brooch of banished beauty. She rests her hands on her seventh-month swell, bolds up her voice to her daughter. What she says, you are the strong one now. Well, there's so many aspects of that that I think really goes to the heart of the book, which is a really good sign of a strong opening passage and so I just want to pick up on on Sarah first of all and ask you you know is she doing the right thing there she's essentially preparing Grace sending her out on the road with short hair so that she can pass as a boy and try I guess find work paid work um is, is that the right thing that she's doing there for her daughter well I mean I don't know if we should judge her so to speak it's an interesting thing that happens. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it's a big decision. You take your daughter, you uh, yank her out of bed, you cut her hair off, and then you tell her, 
off off you go. You're going to make make, make some money for us to come back in in you know at the end of the year, come back next summer, you know, or whenever. Um, but there, you know, there may be more at work, and as 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 we read the book, we start to get an intimation that that but this fellow Boggs, who has been uh, sort of have associating with 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 Sarah. Uh, might ha- might be turning his eyes upon towards, an, towards an unhealthy interest. Yeah, towards so Grace. So this might this, be an intervention as these well. These are the local horrors that exist. But I suppose it's it's interesting that in eighteen forty five, you know, nobody really had a sense, I guess, of exactly what was what was, what was going to lie ahead in the, in the years ahead. Of course, we did, Grace doesn't know what's going on. Not, not at all, <laughs> neither does Sarah. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and it was quite common to have lean years, you know. Um, you know, and even even from what I've read, that there, you know there was an attitude of well, we can get through the first year. It mm. wasn't until the second, you know, the second year when when the when the crop uh, when the crop failed that that it really, you know, things became well. You know, we had you know the, the winter of forty seven, you know, black forty seven. Um, so that's that's when you know events took took a, a very serious uh, turn. Uh, but Grace couldn't have known that, um, and that's one of the things that I had to do writing this book was. To unlearn all of yeah. this history, um, as I was saying, you know, you do have to create a, a physics of the world, an understanding of 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 the, of the period. But when you when you when you go to write a character like this, you can only write from the point of view of what she knows. She's fourteen and she's hard scrabble and she's essentially, you know, experiencing life as it's unfolding moment by moment. And so she cannot know. The uh, layers of interpreted history that 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 we 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 know, or more importantly, that we think we know. I mean, I'm a novelist, and I'm suspicious of the idea of of you know our interpretations of history, and you know, rightly so, because that's history can only be interpretation, and very often it can be guided by um, by fads or ideologies in in academia, and um, you know, and that's not to do it down. It's just that's just how we are, as 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 that's how that's how things go, and so. Uh, I think it's very useful for a novelist to question everything and, and to throw out a lot of a lot of um, what we think we know and just go back to the character and let life unfold moment by moment and try and inhabit the mystery of of life. Um, so there's a perfect logic, really, that it, it's much later in the book that what we know of as the famine is sort of articulated in, in the voice of, of one of the other older characters. Um, for, or what we think of as, as the kind of the inequality as being at the root of, of the famine mm. and the suffering that was happening to so many people. Um, so did that was that again was that something that you sort of intuitively um, knew to to keep to hold back? Yeah, I mean, like the, the different characters in the book have different attitudes about what's going on, and you know, uh, for some of them, it's providence, it's the hand of God, you know, coming down, and that's very much how. Uh, things would have seemed, um, and for sure, people flocked to the churches after you know the priesthood and the nunneries f- filled up, um, uh, and and there are different reasons for that. Um, but one of the reasons might be, you know, uh, the fear of God, you know, the fear of of living in sin, and um, uh, I, you know, I don't know, um, but uh, th- yeah, there are different there are different interpretations, and but I I I was very careful. Um, not to follow the the tried and trusted path of you know articulating a reason that's not my job and the fact is is I have to be truthful to what Grace knows and what Grace believes and and um, Grace isn't approaching the problem like that 
This is not how she's thinking of it. It's a much more primal experience for her. How would you define the voice of of Kali in this book? Is is he is he Grace's sort of bravery speaking, or is he her paranoia, or is is he just her kind of her company on this trip? I mean, I should I should point out something happens to Kali early on in the book, and I wasn't happy about it when I was writing it. <laughs> but it happened. <laughs> it happened. I really didn't want it to happen. Um, when it happened, I was like, mm, "That's that's annoying now because he's." You know, you know intuitively when you have a good character, when there's, there's a character's very, very lively, they're just giving you something back the whole time. And a character like that, you don't even have, they just, they just keep giving to you. And he was gone out of the book and, uh, and then suddenly he returned, obviously not in physical form, but as a voice in, in Grace's mind. And that was a surprise. I didn't see that coming. Um, and... I sort of wondered for a little while what I should do about that. And then I thought, this is this is actually a good idea. You know, I can, it, you know, it's, there's, there's, it's an opportunity to allow the story to actually have a little bit of fun with it because she is having conversations with, with him that are perfectly normal to her. But obviously he's not there and other people are looking at her going, who are you talking to? Um, and, you know, for, for Grace, Collie, in this, in this guise, is Collie. You know, because... Um, what she's undergone to lose Kali is an enormous trauma, and quite clearly she can't process that trauma. And so this is her way of, of coping with, with what's happened by, by bringing him back. And, and he's Kali. I mean, he's still riddling. He's creating his little riddles, and he's, you know, he's, he's foul-mouthed. And, you know, but he's also, he is, um, he does have her back, and he's, you know, he's, he's on the alert, and he's, he's articulating, you know, He's articulating what's going on sometimes in ways that she's not able to articulate it. Um, his presence is kind of a, a reflection of her survival instinct, or her resourcefulness that yeah. you mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and there, I mean, without revealing too much, there is a moment in the book where, um, when you know, when things get pretty, pretty bad, and Collie was always the one who would have the, you know, the courage and the pluck when she actually disassociates and goes into a fugue state, and it's Collie. So, you know, that, it, well, that leads me to my next question, which is that, uh, as you've hinted, it's a kind of a increasingly dark and, and hallucinatory journey that she mm. takes across Ireland. And it's, well, was, it, was it a challenge to build that into the language and the style of the book? Yeah, I mean, there is a section in the book, in, 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 it's called Crow, where, you know, we're at the height of winter of 47 and... Uh, events are are at their worst, and um, what what I found writing it is that realism, the language of of realism, how you describe the everyday, um, can no longer hold. Um, that the language had to come off the grid, and so it had to become more fantastic. It had to become, you know, move almost towards magical realism, and also more towards a kind of fragmentary, I, I use the word modernism very carefully, um, but there is that sense of just um, that fractured consciousness that starts to, because, you know, I have to evoke what's, what's, what's happening at this point. And uh, reality no longer seems like reality. 
And so you cannot, you cannot write about reality using conventional realism. So the language does change for, it's not actually a long period in the book. It's, it's you know, it's, I don't know, it's only a, a, you know, it's a very small section. And it builds up to that point. Oh, I mean, uh, that's it. That's, you know, and then yeah. um, it's quite a moment, I think. Uh, I mean, for me writing it, it was, it was very, uh, it was very powerful. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I found it very powerful. Um, and I also, I also found the ending very powerful. Uh, emotional even um, you know, because there is this sort of journey in the in the biological sense from from that grace takes from being a girl to being a woman yeah and it's expressed in in sort of very uh, I would say uh, positive upbeat kind of ter <laughs> terms it's a kind of an unexpectedly um, happy yeah. shall we say Ending. I mean, happy is the wrong word, of course, but there, but there is a there is a relief from the uh, horror. Yeah. I think at the end. How would you, how would you see that? I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to cover in the book is is to explore like her consciousness as she she you know as she comes of age. She's 14 when the book starts. She's 19 when it ends. Mm. And so you know, the the book takes her into very dark places where where her we might say her consciousness is lowered. Mm -hmm. and to the point where when she comes out of that darkness, she cannot speak, and she doesn't speak for a long period of time. And she can't articulate to her, to her, let alone to other people, but even to herself what she's gone through, and so she loses the power of speech. And the book takes her, though, you know, over this period of time um, to a place of acceptance, for, for what has been and you know when when she does finally uh speak it you know that that the, the, those kind of the, the last words you know this life this life is light is it's it's her acceptance of well that life is life is very you know it's very it's very thin it's very fragile um you know and we can be blown about on the winds of fate very you know and and that's one aspect of, of light, but the other is is that it's it's radiant, that she, that life's beautiful, and she would have a perspective on that, having seen so much loss, and so she, her consciousness is is raised. I mean, by from what she's been through, and you know, and I think that's a very common thing with people who've gone through enormous, like people who've survived the Holocaust. You know, they they, be, they become very powerful people. Yeah, I mean, hopefulness rather than than, than happiness is is the, probably the correct term but it, it is also uh, um quite stunning really that the from the years of famine to the the image of the of fertility um yeah, yeah. at the end um i hate spoiling things for i think anyone who hasn't oh, no, read it, look i, I think people <laughs> should know that the book does have a happy ending you know my goodness yeah it, it, uh, it's and it's really earned i mean yeah. it's not that the trauma is in any way negated as you say it still lingers in her inability to speak and yeah, yeah. At, at, towards and, the end and, and those are the you know the, what she says is the first thing she says in a long time. Yeah. And so we get a sense of, you know, that she, she has come through this. So, I mean, in, in a lot of the reception to this book, there, there's been uh, a good few comparisons to uh, Cormac McCarthy. You know, I know he was an influence on you becoming a writer. I've, I've read that you said that at one point. Um, what I'm kind of interested in is kind of that kind of apocalyptic kind of scenario, a genre to which you return to as a reader or as a viewer. Um, I mean, 
McCarthy's definitely an influence, yeah. And William Faulkner and, and the Southern Gothics, Flannery O'Connor. Um, I love I love their sensibility. I love their fearlessness. I love their uh, the way that they um, use language uh, in, in such a, a kind of... Um, that leans towards the grotesque. Flannery O'Connor had, had a line about the grotesque. She said that the grotesque is... Uh, oh no, she was actually quoting Thomas Mann, that the grotesque is sort of anti-bourgeois style, that it, there's something about it that it sort of, it seems to, you know, it, it, it needles at the, the sensibility of, of, of fine sensibility, you know, because it, it forces you to look at the ugliness in life. And that's, ugliness can be very interesting um, because we are surrounded by ugliness as well as beauty. Um, so th- those writers have been, have been very important in, in my kind of, my sensibility. Um, and very often you write what is closest to your sensibility, you know, that you discover the writers who mean the most to you because that's actually the way you're wired yourself. And, and um, in terms of the apocalyptic thing, um, I mean, I, hadn't, I haven't really thought about it like that. Uh, I can see, I mean, the Washington Post compared it to The Road for sure. I've, a few other people probably did. Um, uh, I can see why. Uh, and The Road is an extraordinary, exquisite book. Um, but, but I wasn't thinking of, I just, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking of it like that. Mm. Um, you know, to me, if you were to name a McCarthy book, um, I would have said that this is more like All the Pretty Horses, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 for some reason, I didn't actually, like, I almost didn't see the apocalyptic nature in it, you know. Whereas like, like a book like The Road is intensely apocalyptic from beginning to end. I mean, that is, you know, where, uh, you know, um, that's the situation from page one, you know, and whereas Grace doesn't operate, you know, fully, it, it, it slides, it slides into it and then it comes back out of it. Um, but it's, I mean, it's a very, uh, it's a very useful, very powerful uh, mode of, of, of uh, you know, exploring uh, certain things to do with what we are. And, you know, I think, like, if you look at Grace now, a lot of what's happening in, in, in that book, there are parallels right now. I mean, you could look at Syria and you could look at how, um, you know, millions of people have been completely uprooted and dislocated and dispossessed. And it's the same horror, you know, and there, there will be Syrians in 100 to 150 years time and they'll be sitting in, in a room to- talking to their national newspaper about the very same traumas and about books that they've been written about it. And that's, that's what that will happen. And this is part of the reason that you, you're not a fan of the term historical fiction as, yeah. as a kind of a label on a kind of a genre that it doesn't really always fit. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of, it's taken a lot of abuse as a term over the years and, you know, people tend to think of it as some kind of, you know, uh, you know, butt ice ripping, um, you know, this kind of cheap fiction. Um, and I mean, to me, I've said this, I've said this many times, but like for some, for some reason there seems to be this strange idea that if, that contemporary fiction, people go, it's contemporary fiction, you know, it's cutting edge, it's, it's, it's because it's writing about the present moment, that if you don't write about the present moment, you can't be cutting edge. And, and, and that's it, that, that attitude does exist for, and I've seen it countless times and it drives me up the wall because, um, you know, uh, an awful lot of contemporary fiction actually lacks perspective and, um, you know, fails to actually see the deeper truths. And that's why historical fiction is is definitely becoming a very uh, much more common, um, much more common uh, mode of fiction at the minute. And you know, the Walter Scott Prize that I was up for recently, they, they said that they had they had actually seen a surge of of of, of novels um, 
this year compared to last year and the same before that because that th th this form of of this genre shall we say of 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 literature is is becoming more popular and my my feeling on it is that is that the present is um atomized in in our minds it's it's impossible now to take hold of of what contemporary life is i mean our attention spans are shot and there's so much information and uh to seize that and to see it for what it is is extremely difficult um and when when you take it you take a moment in history and you set a story um you know in 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 historical time what you can do is it allows you to look at not what we are now but what we are always and you can throw out a lot of the distractions you can really dig down into into what we are as as human beings and you can you can see how we work because you know there are human truths that are that remain the same always you know you see the you see the same people when you read sophocles you know and the same people in homer and there's a reason for that and that's what i'm interested in and i don't want to be distracted by you know technology and whatever you know whatever it is that we think is is the now and whatever we think that is important to me a lot of that is actually uh, besides the point yeah. i mean i kind of know what you mean there is a certain type of historical fiction where you feel like the setting came first and character mm. is is very much secondary or and often doesn't really show up at all yeah often i mean okay that some there, there are you know there is a certain corner of historical fiction where you know they're, they're they're essentially written by historians who love facts, you know, and so mm. what they're doing is they're just shoehorning in facts and facts and facts and facts and character just, they're not writing from character, you know. Um, but, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of literary fiction that's historical, that's seriously cutting edge in terms of, of you know, its language and its technique and, you know, um, and I would say, uh, even if you look at like a really obvious choice like Wolf Hall, Mantel's Wolf Hall, if you if you really look at her technique at what she's doing on the page, she's she's extraordinary, you know. Um, you There's know. a level of detail in both in period setting, but also in in the mind. Yeah, she just has, she has technical mastery that's just astonishing, um, you know, and, and you know way way ahead of many people to be honest with you. Um, so I'll just finish up on a couple of questions, I suppose, just about your sort of your writing life. Um, I, I'm, it's fascinating that you were, I know it's a while ago now, but you were a film critic for a number of mm. years. And I'm just wondering what you've taken from that experience into novel writing. There's definitely a lot of schooling, because if you think about it, you're watching a film for an hour and a half and you're watching it to write a review about it. So you're, 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 you're not watching it for enjoyment per se, you haven't spent the tenor on it, you're, you're there because you're, you're to review it. So there's an analytical approach that you're bringing in. So, I mean, I reviewed over a thousand films in, in the period of, uh, as critic of the Tribune. And, uh, you know, that, that level of, of, of analysis, so, so like very intensely over a period of five years, had an effect on, on my understanding of what storytelling was. Um, and I, I, I realized from that that I think storytelling is fundamentally important. It's one of the big things I got I took from cinema that uh that you know we're storytelling machines in the everyday and um there there was obviously a a movement to fracture storytelling and then completely discredit it entirely um and I think that movement has passed it's gone and um I'm perfectly happy telling stories that are that are um 
that are actually, you know, A to Z stories, you know. Um, it makes perfect sense to me. We, we live our lives um, in, in a linear fashion. <laughs> it's, it's inescapable. <laughs> we all um, have an arc. <laughs> we have an arc. So, you know, st- there's something just deeply satisfying about 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 story. And Borges, um, at some point, uh, uh, wrote an essay, and he said he, he could foresee fiction at some point going back to epic storytelling, you know, just proper you know, proper um, epic storytelling. And I, I like that idea. But I also took from cinema um, a love of the visual. And I do have a very visual imagination. And I like the idea that when you're reading my work, that you can absolutely see it and touch it and feel it. And just that texture should be there. And I often get frustrated when I, and I read writing where it's something has been described, but I actually can't see it. It is just, there's nothing there. And you know, I can imagine my way into it. That's fine. But, you know, I, I like it when a writer can kind of evoke something thoroughly. Um, and so I, 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 I try to, I, I do see what I write as if I was a camera, as it, like I see it visually. And so I try to then articulate what I see and get as close to it as I possibly can. Um, now, I could imagine maybe a few slightly avant-garde uh, directors uh, tackling Grace. I think that would be a great marriage of... Uh, of um, screen and and uh, and, and novel. Um, another question I wanted to ask just about your writing routine, because imagine when you're in sort of the grip of a really powerful dark passage, like the one towards the end of mm. Grace. Like I, I don't, I, I can't can feel you hovering around that passage. I can't quite <laughs> picture, you know, just stopping for lunch. <laughs> Does that is that something that yeah. that that takes over? that period of time that you're dedicated to that, is, is it that the only thing that you do? Um, I, mean, I, I mean, what happens with something like that is you do write that in, in one go and then you, then you revisit it. But something like that, you don't stop halfway through when you're writing that. that that's something that, that goes down in, uh, you know. I remember writing the, the last, the, the sequence is the sequence at the end of Red Sky and Morning, my first novel, and, and it's a pretty brutal, climactic thing. And it had been in my head for some time. And I remember I was taking a train from San Sebastian to Madrid and it was a busy enough train. It was a morning and uh, I just got on the train and started writing and, and I wrote that scene uh, straight through and sort of arrived in Madrid and it was done. And I knew I was pretty much at the end of the book at that point. And, uh, and that scene, it was a rare moment when uh, I went back to look at it later on and it was almost to complete the complete thing. It didn't need. I mean, obviously, you, you you changed it later, but it didn't need a lot of changing. So there are there are passages like that that do come out almost fully formed. Um, but that's unusual, and most of the time, it's it's serious. rewriting. It's rewriting. Look, writing is rewriting. That's mm-hmm. what writing is. It's rewriting. It's it's uh, you get the thing down, and it's awful, and then you look at it and you go, "Why is it awful?" Okay, and you go back at it again, and you. You, you hammer at it and you discover there might be something else in there you're looking for and then you, you go at it again and um, and then you try to get it to sound right and you're constantly chiseling at it so that the, you know that the sentence has no more has no more weight than it needs and um, I, I like to believe that every word counts and you know if you take a word out of any sentence the sentence falls apart um, and so uh, and yet there, I, I, there's a richness that I look for as well and and so that's the challenge is, is, is the brevity and the richness in, in the sentence. So I'll just finish by asking you what you're working on now. I've just sold my fourth novel, um, which is something different. <clears throat> Sometimes it's useful to get, get out of, you know, 
get out of the territory that you've been in, especially if you're feeling that you're in danger of being typecast by it. Um, so uh, this is a novel that begins at the contemporary moment. Um, but it's, it's, set, uh, in, it's set ostensibly in South America, and it's about two fishermen who get washed out to sea in a great storm and what unfolds on the boat. And it was inspired by a, short, uh, by, by a real event and then other events that I, when I started to look into it, there was other things that... I, and so these sort of combined. And, but it's one of those books where when, when, when I first read about the real event, my idea of what actually happened, not what I was reading about, but what I could see ne- needed to happen or what that's when I knew I needed to write the book. And I saw, I saw, I saw the whole book in a flash. And so um, it's called Beyond the Sea, and it's very minimalist. It's uh, it's short. Uh, it begins in the contemporary moment, but as it unfolds, time starts to fall away, and it's sort of it's maybe harking back to um, a certain type of fiction, mid-century fiction uh, that you know Camus wrote, Beckett, that kind of. Um, but, you know, trying to get to the core of what we're about. Well, that sounds intriguing. Um, so I'll just uh, say congratulations on the Kerry Group Award. That was a great win for you. And uh, just to thank everyone in the live audience here for coming to the Irish Times podcast tonight. Thanks to sound engineer JJ Vernon, to Irish Times books editor Martin Doyle and everyone in the Irish Writers' Centre for hosting us. But a very special thanks, of course, to Paul Lynch. Thank you. Thank you.